sitting on the long retreats, uh, sometimes, uh, a few times, I think, um, uh, I remember receiving instructions from, um, from the teachers uh, uh, about how to listen to a Dharma talk. And that, that was uh, informative for me, something that I've been able to do sometimes and sometimes not. But <coughs> Uh, so the instruction would be to actually that practice is continuing so it's not so much the sitting in silence or the walking but now it's actually uh, hearing somebody uh, present ideas and so that it would be really in, uh, very much invited to stay very uh, uh, attentive to the inner reaction of what is happening how this is lending how is the mind that is listening you know and the passages that happen, passages of uh, clarity, oh, wow, that's being illuminated for me. You know, wow, it seems so clear. Or confusion, or reactivity, don't agree, this or that, you know. So there's many things that can move through. And uh, so the art would be to actually be aware of what is moving through oneself as a how, not just the information given, but how it's lending, how it's... Uh, uh, impacting, you know, and what it's eliciting in oneself, you know, and to allow these movements to actually move, to do their dynamic thing, you know, closing down, opening up, you know, uh, boredom, uh, interest, you know, it's uh, it's alive like a, like a sitting uh, is, and so uh, uh, even uh, on these long retreats, one month, two month, three month retreat. They would invite us to actually uh, be in the meditative posture. And to me, it's been really helpful. Not that it has to be at <coughs> all. But they would say that's, that would be one way to actually listen to a talk, would be to be sitting and be uh, impacted uh, and be aware of what's, uh, how <coughs> things are lending. So you could, uh, if you want, play with this a little bit uh, today. And uh, today, if there is a Q&A, it will be at the end of the, uh, of the presentation. We get to keep playing with the, uh, the experiment of bringing PowerPoint slides into a Dharma talk as well. <laughs> that's, um, that's certainly a, a, a dance. So uh, one, maybe starting with a clarification um, that arose out of, um, that was helpful in one of the small group interviews and, and may therefore be helpful in the larger group is this question that I brought up earlier when uh, the, my teacher on a, on a retreat said, you know, asking, what do I get from this? Just, I just want to make sure that it's clear. It's that exploration isn't at a uh, reflective level. Like Pascal was talking about these three levels. What do I get from this is not at the reflective level. So the reflective level could be simply checking in to see what the framework is like whether it's dependent origination or habit loop or whatever, but then quickly having that framework drop right into our embodied experience. What do I get from this is really a, in this moment, when I'm caught up in anger, what does this feel like? Okay. So I just wanted to clarify, it's not a, because it can be easy for the, what do I get from this, with our thinking mind saying, oh, well, I might get this, I might get this, I might get this. With but he was talking about what I'm talking about is how is this impacting me right now in my experience, in my direct experience? So that's on the meditative level, not on the reflective level. So I hope that that, if that was not clear for folks, my, I apologize. Um, <coughs> and I hope that that's helped to clarify it, something that we can continue to play with. So I'll show a few more slides and we'll continue this dialogue as we dive deeper into um, this, this self. Um, so we'll start with just a few. Just as a reminder from yesterday, I'll end see where I forgot to check to see if... Can everybody see the slides? I know, where is Elaine? Elaine, okay. Would it be helpful for me to describe them as I, as I go? Probably because I'm 
not realizing we had slides, I moved back here. So okay. Yes, that would be helpful. So just for, so I know, when you're sitting closer, can you see, are the slides clear, or is it still helpful for me to describe? I'm happy to describe them. I couldn't see them before. Okay, that's helpful for me to know. Okay. So this... Um, this process of dependent origination that we talked about yesterday where a cue comes into our mind and gets interpreted as pleasant or unpleasant and then there's this urge to continue the pleasant, this urge to make the unpleasant go away. This is what we've been exploring in our direct experience. What does that urge feel like? What does that urge feel like? And where do we, how does that lead to a behavior, whether it's mental or physical? Um, and what the Buddhist psychology talks about is that this leads to a birth of a self-identity and as we lay down a memory that says oh, you did that and you know that was a good thing as in it made the pleasant continue or it made the unpleasant go away we start to see the world through certain glasses these subjective bias glasses from a modern perspective or ignorance from, a, from the ancient perspective because we're not seeing clearly at that point Right? We're seeing through certain lenses. You know, we've probably heard of the rosy-colored lenses or the dark, you know, oh, you're wearing rosy-colored lenses. Oh, you're wearing dark lenses. They're talking about subjective bias here. Uh, they're talking about ignorance. So, you know, I, this, um, and this sense of self seems to be central to, you know, to the causes of suffering. So we're going to explore that a bit more today. And I... There's this quote from uh, Alan Watts, who is a philosopher. Some of you might know him. Uh, He says, The ego, the self which he has believed himself to be, is nothing but a pattern of habits. And I think he puts this nicely because he's talking about each time we become identified with any type of habit loop, right? this starts to build up our sense of self around that. Oh, I'm the guy that whatever, or... I'm the guy that always gets angry when somebody cuts me off in traffic, right? That's a sense of self. Oh, and it becomes habitual. I might be honking or giving the universal sign of displeasure without even being conscious of it. You know, oh, my grandmother's sitting next to me in the car and I'm, you know, doing things that I wouldn't be proud of if I'm not aware. So I think we can unpack this in, we can take this to an experiential level and start to really unpack this and and we have been unpacking this, but just to bring this um, together in this talk we can look at a continuum around kind of getting caught up in our experience and I'll explain what I mean by this. So if we think of a continuum so if we get caught up in daydreaming, right? Maybe some of us had a daydream or two today. <laughs> Maybe. I'll speak for myself. Okay. So, so if I had a daydream today, I can wake up. And then I'm awake. Right? So the level of caught-upness in that daydream is very small. I'm awake. I'm awake. So if we take this on a continuum, stress, getting caught up in stress, right? If, if I have... Um, a bunch of emails piling up in my inbox. That can cause stress for me. And that stress is not going to be relieved in a conventional sense until I go through all my emails and answer them. So that, I can't say, okay, stress, be gone. Like a daydream. So there's a le- level of caught-upness that is a little, uh, a little more caught-up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Addiction. So a uh, simple definition that I use Uh, in my addiction clinic is continued use despite adverse consequences, right? And I like the continued use being any behavior, whether it's a drug, whether it's yelling at people in traffic, um, whether it's, uh, you know, my uh, technology, continued use despite adverse consequences. So there can be a full awareness that I am caught up in a loop, yet a complete inability to get out. You know, a lot of my patients talk about you know, they see all the terrible things that their addiction is doing for their life and their family's life and society's life, and they can't stop. So there's the far end of caught-upness. So caught-up that we, it feels like we're completely out of control. Okay? So we can think of this caught-up. Simple, daydream, <coughs> stress a little bit more, addiction, far end of the spectrum. So let's look at caught-upness from an experiential perspective, from our own 
perspective. So, in your so recall a time recently, as recently as possible, would be helpful when you felt fear. Okay, and just notice when you bring that up, what fear feels like in your body. Okay, so just take a moment if you can bring up a feeling of fear and just kind of note where that is. I'm going to show you a, um, this was a, a study where the researchers induced a bunch of different emotions in people and then they basically gave them a coloring book and said color in where you feel these emotions. And they used what they call a heat map. So a brighter like yellow is like where everybody agrees that yes, that's that's it, that's it, that's it. So when we look at fear, can you relate to this? Does it feel like this contraction kind of here in our bodies? Okay. So whether you can relate to that or not, this is this is a result of about 800 people that they had do this coloring thing, and what this shows is that there, even when we're not trained, so these aren't meditators or anything, when we're not trained in meditation, we can still kind of have a general sense of what fear feels like, right? Oh, I'm afraid. Oh, are you afraid? Yes, I can. I'm afraid. So just to describe this, this is a heat map of a, of, of a body, and we see that the, the most, um, the, the hottest part is right in the chest, this, this contraction in the chest. Now it's interesting, when, we, when they chronicled other emotions, anger showed very similar uh, heat to fear, but there was more in the head and the face as well as in the chest, and also in the hands. You know, I don't know if any of us can relate to like our hands are like burning with this agitation, this, this anger. Uh, interestingly, anxiety shows very much the same pattern. So we see this, this heat, this contraction in the chest. And then with anxiety, the only real difference here was that they, they showed blue in the legs, meaning they didn't really feel much. It was an absence of feeling. So when, when there's anxious, it's all balled up in the stomach and in the chest. You can, and actually in the anxiety folks, you can see it more in the stomach, definitely more than in anger. So there's red in the stomach, there's red and yellow in the chest, and there's blue in the legs, okay? Is this something we can relate to experientially? So what they're describing is this contracted quality of experience that we can all know in our own experience, whether we're anger, angry, whether we're afraid, whether we're anxious. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. Now I'm going to go back to um, linking up the, um, just as a reminder, there this reward pathway that we talked about. I showed you a study where um, this group, you know, basically did a simulation of Facebook and they found that our reward pathways were activated when we talk about ourselves. There was another study with adolescents where they showed them their own Instagram feed and the only manipulation they made was that they, they manipulated the number of likes that the certain um, pictures got versus other pictures so they could have a contrast. So what this slide shows is that people viewed in a simulated Instagram feed while their brain was being scanned and then they compared the brain activation. You, we need a relative contrast, right? We need one condition versus another. So they compared getting many likes versus few likes. And what they found was that the nucleus accumbens, that reward center of the brain, was activated, but so was a self-referential brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex. And we're going to dive into that more. And what this picture shows is the posterior, there's this red circle around a certain part of the brain, which is kind of... It's, it's in the middle of our brain, and it's kind of toward the back. That's why it's called the posterior. So that, that brain region is part of a self-referential brain network called the default mode network, okay? Now, the posterior cingulate cortex is interesting. I'm just going to show you an, one study of many. This is actually done for, by one of my friends. This is her PhD thesis, uh, Dana Small. And what she did was she put people in a PET scanner where she could scan the activation in their brain. And she started, she gave them their favorite type of chocolate. 
And she looked right at the beginning when they first got their first piece of chocolate. And they had to rate how much, how good was this? So the rating scale was, I really want another piece. It was delicious. That's 10 on this side of the scale. And when they got that first piece and they really liked it, they also activated, you can't see this very well here, but they're also activating the posterior cingulate cortex. Now what's fascinating about this, so I like, I want more chocolate. Part of the experiment, and people signed off their consent to do this, she just kept feeding them chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually, what do you think happened? Stop feeding me. This is terrible. (laughs) But you just, I really want another piece. So the other end of the scale was eating more would make me sick. Awful. Okay? Well, guess what? Their posterior cingulate cortex got activated on both sides of the scale. This is one of the few parts of the brain that, that get activated, not only when we're wanting a lot more, but when we're saying, stop, this is awful, this is terrible. So can you see the connection between this and dependent origination? Wanting more good, wanting less bad, if we want to put it in very crude terms. So this is fascinating. Chocolate. Who knew chocolate could be so revealing? (laughs) So if we bring this back to practice and we think of um, getting caught up, right? Whether we get caught up in wanting more chocolate or whether we get caught up in daydreaming or whether we get caught up in stress or whether we get caught up in anxiety or addiction. So daydreaming activates the posterior cingulate cortex. Anxiety, rumination, craving. There are a whole bunch of different types of things that activate the posterior cingulate cortex. And so we can ask ourselves in a very crude way, if we're getting caught up or getting in our own way through through this, this samsaric loop, the task could be, well, to get out of our own way or not not get caught up in ourselves, right? In identifying with, I need to have more chocolate. So um, I'm not going to go through the details of this, but I'm just going to show you our our first study with experienced meditators. This was done a few years ago now, so I'm not going to go through the details. I can send you the paper if you're interested. But we studied uh, experienced versus novice meditators. And... We looked across three different types of meditation because we wanted to see what was common amongst different types of meditation practices. And um, in, in this brain scan that I'm going to show you, um, red means increased activity and blue means decreased activity. So the first thing, I can't show you the first result because it was a non-finding. We went in there with this I went in there with this naive hypothesis thinking we're going to find a part of the brain that got activated when we're meditating. We didn't find a single one. It wasn't a huge study, but we had very experienced meditators. Actually, many uh, uh, folks from IMS helped helped with this study. Um, But we didn't find a single brain region that was increased in activity during meditation. But we did find that there were only four brain regions that were different between novice and experienced meditators. And two of those four were these main hubs of the default mode network, and one of those four was the posterior cingulate cortex. So I'm showing you here a contrast between experienced versus novice meditators' brain activity, and what this shows is blue in the posterior cingulate cortex. So that same brain region that gets activated when we want more chocolate or when we want less chocolate gets deactivated during breath awareness meditation, during loving kindness meditation, and during choiceless awareness, when we're just resting in awareness of whatever is arising. So all three of these have this convergent uh, finding, which is a decrease in activity. So if we can explore this a little bit more, because we looked across a bunch of different people's brains, you know, and we looked at average activity. We wanted to see, could we pinpoint this more carefully and link up the subjective experience very closely with brain activity. So we use this um, technique called real-time neurofeedback where we can, I'm showing you a picture here of a cutout of the brain 
where we can have people meditate and we can give them feedback from a specific brain region in real time as they're meditating. Okay? So that's what, that's what I'm showing you here is a cutout which shows the posterior cingulate cortex. And on the next slide, I'll show, oh, we can do control experiments as well, which I'm not going to go through, but it's really easy to fool ourselves as scientists, so we need to do a bunch of controls. So I'm, I'm not going to show that today, um, but you can read it in the papers. So what I'm going to show you here is a graph. So we have people, meditators lie in the scanner. They meditate with their eyes open. And this graph starts filling in, which is measuring relative increase or decrease activity in their posterior cingulate cortex. Every two seconds, it measures whether the brain region goes up in activity or goes down in activity relative to a baseline. Okay? So just like we've been talking about comparison conditions, right? what's it feel like when I'm caught in a habit loop versus what's it feel like when I am concentrated or calm? Right? Those are com relative differences. We do the same thing with neuroimaging because the brain activity is, is different at any moment, so we need a baseline comparison. So we use this word task where we just show people words and have them decide if those words describe them or not. And, and that's not that important, but just to let you know, we're looking at relative change from that baseline. And so over time, this bar graph fills in that shows red, shows an increase in activity, and blue shows a decrease in activity. And we can do a number of runs, and then we can ask people after each run. So this is three minutes. They're meditating, paying attention to their breath. And at the end of that three minutes, we can immediately ask them, how well did your experience, your subjective experience, line up with your brain activity? And they can say, well, you know, here the red went up when I was you know, getting caught up in something, and uh, the blue was when I was meditating. Right? And so we have them describe their experience to us and then rate how well that correlates with their, uh, with the graph correlates with their subjective experience. What I'm showing you at the bottom is a correspondence score. So we gave them a 0 to 10. 0 didn't correspond at all. 10, it was perfect. On average, people rated, uh, novices rated this 8 out of 10. So very good correspondence between their subjective experience and their brain activity. Now, the experienced meditators also reported a strong correspondence, but you can see a huge difference here in the brain activity. So here, this graph in the first run of this expert meditator, it was red at the beginning, and then it started dropping blue, 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 so decreased activity. And by his fourth run, it was basically all blue. Okay. So what this shows, and this, these are, this guy was actually learning to meditate while he was watching his brain activity, you could see is like, you know, oh... <laughs> I'm meditating, watching my brain. That's not that's not what I do in the in the meditation hall. So, he, he, but quickly adjusted, and you can see his brain activity start to drop lower and lower and lower. And then by the fourth run, he you know he was he was familiar with the setup, and he could just drop right in. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Okay. And Elaine, if I'm not describing the slides well enough, just stop me. But it, uh, I'll try to be as descriptive as I can. Uh, yes, and I can also, all of this is published, I can send the papers. So I'm going to show a, um, before I do this, we cut the runs down into one minute and have the experienced meditators really describe their experience so we could really line that up very, very carefully. And um, then we have them report, and then we could line up their experience with their brain activity. So here's an example of an experienced meditator. He said, at the beginning, I caught myself. I was trying to guess when the words were going to end. That was the baseline task. And when the meditation was going to begin. So I was kind of trying to be like, ready, set, go. And then there was an additional word that popped up. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and so you see that there's a red spike there. So he had this oh, shit moment. And it spiked red. <laughs> and then he said, and then I sort of immediately settled in and it and I was really getting into it. And that's when it went blue. And then there's this other red spike, and he, he said, and then I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's describing exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and then you see the red spike. So he could line up that red spike with getting caught up in, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and then it went blue again. He said, and I was like, okay, wait, don't get distracted. And then I got back into it, and then it got blue again. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. 
it's doing exactly what my mind is doing. So when we read again, right? Oh my gosh! Uh, and he was laughing at this point. He said, "So I find it really funny because that's to the next question a perfect map of what my mind was going through." So we were asking these questions. Really line up your subjective experience with your brain activity. So that was really helpful for us to calibrate our equipment to see if it was actually uh, corresponding to their experience. And we could take it, dive into a deeper level and start to see where, what exactly their experience was. So here are some examples. So here's an example of somebody's brain, that, their posterior cingulate that got activated. He said, I don't remember as a man or a woman, uh, he or she said, I worried that I wasn't using the graph as an object of meditation, so I tried to look at it harder or somehow pay attention more to it. And that's when it went red. I tried, right? So you're hearing the sound of my voice. Try to hear the sound of my voice harder, right? It doesn't even make sense, right? It's just known. Awareness knows, right? If the hearing faculty is online, awareness knows. So this person got caught up in trying to concentrate or focus or pay attention more. And that's when his, his or her brain activity increased. Here are some examples of deactivation. One person said, toward the middle, I had some thoughts which I don't see on the graph, maybe because I let them kind of flow by. And this is where it went blue and stayed blue. Another one, uh, you can see where it just goes bluer and bluer and bluer, said, I noticed that the more I relaxed and stopped trying to do anything, the bluer it went. So, <laughs> maybe this is what Yoda was talking about. You know? <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> right? So, trying. What does trying feel like? And so I'm just going to... I'll finish these with... and. and Maybe Pascal can jump in here because he was talking about, uh, was it yesterday, about the Buddha, you know, um, not trying to, you know, the, it was the perfect amount of effort, right? Not forcing, not abandoning. Yeah, not forcing, not abandoning. So we see what it, forcing, you know, looks like, right? We can feel it in our experience and there, we have a brain correlate now, forcing versus not forcing. And I think, uh, I like this quote. This is a, Vince Lombardi's a, a foot, uh, American football coach. Um, they named the Super Bowl trophy after him. He talks. He says, "Practice does not make perfect. Only perfect practice makes perfect." Right? So we can sit here on our cushion, but it doesn't mean just sitting on our cushion is going to get us enlightened. Right? This is about finding the conditions that support awareness. Right? Um, you know, what are the proximate causes of mindfulness, previous moments of mindfulness? What supports you know, this process of stepping out of these samsaric habit loops, seeing how painful they are, really seeing that clearly, so that they, we, our brain naturally says, oh, that's painful, I'm going to drop that hot coal. So this is about finding out what, what perfect practice means. Not like in a trying manner, but in a finding the conditions that support practice manner. Do you want to add anything at this point? No, I was just uh, something I was saying earlier is that looking at the graph with the red and the blue, I was thinking to learn meditation, that could be a very useful tool. Uh, one could, but uh, actually we have this device inside yes. of us. You know, we can actually recognize for ourselves and monitor ourselves. We know, caught, caught. You know, we find this out uh, on our own inner graph. That's what this intuitive awareness is. It's going to reveal the texture. Also, um, the fact that it goes in the red to me is not a sign of like we, uh, wouldn't be a sign of bad meditation. Actually, this is going to happen in life that yeah. our minds are going to get caught to actually learn to experience that and uh, be awake to it. Like, what's the feeling? Of, you know when suddenly I'm right and everybody's wrong, or the other's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or the appearance of the I, or I'm just sitting here and there's just breathing, and suddenly there's the I that appears. Like I got it, you know, <laughs> I, you know, formed, you know, and I like how, or you're walking. There's just walking, stepping, stepping. Then uh, you raise your head, head, and you see somebody's watching you, or somebody's in the field, and suddenly. 
How do I do? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to red. Going in the red is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we want to learn what, oh, okay, this is what uh, clinging is. Clinging to being seen in a certain way, clinging to a view of self, clinging to something being pleasant, remaining pleasant, owning, anything like that. So when it happens here, actually it's good. I've said, you know, you, uh, you mentioned, what's the question again? What do you get out of this? What do I get? So one of the things I would say for a while in my practice was, don't go away too quickly. Strong reactivity. Stay here. There's a lot of information. I want the self-righteousness. I want uh, to soak in the shame. I want the confusion. I, I actually, it's, I want to learn from it. If I want to get rid of it too quickly and go in the blue, I'm, it's not exactly it for me. It's like, hold on. Oh, yeah, the joy of being right. <laughs> okay, so let me feel this. Oh, it's also isolating. You know, like it's good that I stay there a little bit. You know, but I don't know what the graph would actually look like. You know? Probably go blue and red and blue and red. You know, like if there is anger, like, and then I notice, oh, there's anger. I remember one time seeing, uh, going to make a report to my teacher, one of my teachers, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he was, I said something, you know, he said, uh, it was the first day of the retreat, and he said, uh, how's your mindfulness? And I said, well, I'm mindful about 50% of the time, which, you know, in my mind makes sense. I'm arriving, I'm really, like, organizing myself, thinking about, like, will I get my food, my place, <laughs> you know, and all. And, uh, and he said, uh, he said, wow, wow, you've been practicing all this time, and this is the amount of mindfulness, it go, you know, and it kind of kicked me out of the room. And I remember I went out and I was like, you <laughs> And so, I would probably have hit <laughs> the highest point on the red, you know? And then I would notice, like, oh, the anger, you know, the charge. And then I would almost have joy, you know, like, wow, this is so strong. But then the mind would kick back and like, yeah, but he is. <laughs> I would do this to Pascal, you know? And then I was like, oh, strong reaction. And probably I would go in and out, but it was good that I would like, oh, feel it, because these things happen. So the best... So we, our brains are feedback machines. That's how we learn, right? A machine might be a strong word, but they're feedback organs, organisms. And so what Pascal is pointing out is the best type of feedback we can get is something where we learn from everything. So it's not better, because better is also, <laughs> oh, this is better. It's not better to go blue or red. It's that each can help us be a mindfulness bell to say, oh, oh, what's anger feel like? Can I calibrate that? What does anger feel like in my body? What does it feel like when I'm calm? When there's blue, right? And I'm, I won't... Uh, actually, let me just um, it, highlight that with some examples. So we can even think of this as, as <coughs> calibrating this feedback machine, whether we use these fancy <coughs> machines or whether we calibrate this machine. And that's what we're doing this these few days together, is calibrating this machine so we don't need these types of things. But it helps us ask these questions. You know, what are the ingredients that we need if we're trying to make a good mindfulness soup, right? So we can think of um, uh, paying attention as the salt, right? It's hard to find a good soup that doesn't have a little bit of salt in it. But we can't just add a bunch of sugar and call that soup, right? Mmm, that's good, because it's going to be too sickly sweet, right? We, we can't stomach that. So we can start asking, what are these ingredients that support mindfulness practice? I'm going to show you some examples from some novice meditators who had just learned to meditate that morning. We go through three-minute runs. Okay, so you, on the slide here is four three-minute runs. So these are short runs. The first run is red, all red. Second run, all red. Third run, mostly all red. Fourth run, all blue, right? Brain transplant, right? <laughs> no. no. But we can ask them, what happened? So what was different in that fourth run? He so, was sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I felt a lot more relaxed, like it was less of a struggle to prevent my mind from wandering. 
So the instruction was to pay attention to your breath. He was trying, right? This is what I did for 10 years at least in my practice. I'm just going to force myself to concentrate on my breath, right? And then he realized, oh, I can pay attention much more easily if I stop forcing it. So he talked about relaxation. The fifth factor of awakening, pasati, literally translated as tranquility. So this realm of relaxation, when we're tranquil, it's easier to pay attention to something. So we can think of this as an ingredient that supports awareness. Oh, relaxation. Here's an experienced meditator who was, so we've been talking a lot about interest, wonder, joy. So he was focusing on that quality of experience as he was paying attention to mindful breathing. And you can see here, these three runs, his brain is really, really blue. Uh, This was a, a Tibetan practitioner but he, uh, a Western Tibetan practitioner. Um, he, so this w- these runs were even more uh, deactivated than when he was doing his traditional shamatha or other types of, of practices. So this, when he really focused in on getting interested, his brain got really quiet. Now this interest, uh, Pascal mentioned it this morning, right? Second factor of awakening. So we're finding these ingredients that support, um, that support awakening. And we can see these brain correlates. I'll show you one last example. Here's a novice meditator in the third run. So first run, some blue, some red. Second run is some red and some blue. You can see a lot of it up and down and up and down. And then in the third run, there's a lot of red. And he said, well, I was thinking about my breath. And he sounded, he said, you know, I was thinking about my breath. I don't think your feedback works because I was thinking about my breath. Now, remember, this is a novice meditator. In the very next run, we see a, a huge flip again to Blue, who's sleeping, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, he said, I focused on the physical sensation instead of thinking in and out. So we can see a clear difference between getting caught up in that thinking, oh, thinking about my breath, and the embodied experience of feeling the physical sensation of the breath. So I think you know, one way to put this is, is get out of our own way. When we get out of our own way and we just drop into the knowing, oh, here's breathing, as compared to I'm breathing or thinking about my breathing, we can see a, a huge shift in this brain activity. So we'll, we'll transition this more into uh, more of a discussion around how does this... You know, how can we calibrate this, this, this laboratory without needing a fancy fMRI machine? We've been playing with this already. And what I showed you at the beginning here was these, you know, these heat maps of what that contraction feels like. So we can, we can even calibrate our system. So you know how you zero a scale before you weigh something, right, at the grocery store or whatever? So we can think of calibrating the two ends of our system if, as we play with this together. So one end, think of if we're looking at contraction versus expansion, right? So this contracted quality of experience, whether it's fear, whether it's forcing, striving, trying. So we know what the, fear, what the experience of fear feels like, that contracted quality. So that helps us calibrate this side, okay? So what helps us calibrate this side? You know, Pascal already was starting to play with that with the guided instruction last night. But think of joy, right? Does joy feel contracted? No, right? So we can start to find placeholders as we calibrate this feedback system for ourselves. Both helpful. It's not that we're always aiming, you know, oh, I'm contracted. Oh, no, I'm contracted. Because <laughs> it'll just keep us balled up here. But we can notice, oh, what are the conditions? Right? If, am I caught up in some type of anger loop, for example? And is that causing contraction? Oh, when there's interest, when there's curiosity in that moment, does that in already start to unball that? Right? Oh, right? <laughs> you modeled it beautifully, Pascal, when you were, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm angry at the... Right? In that moment, when you're amazed at how angry you are, are you as angry? No, I'm not angry. Yeah. <laughs> so we can... I'm awake. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really... Uh, this will be my last slide. That's really... I love this Dogen quote because he really 
Buddha talks about this. To study Buddhism is to study the self. So we're talking about the self, the experiential self, this contraction that says, I am here and this separates me from the rest of the world, right? Here's me and here's everything else. Dualism, right? So there's that, there's that experiential self. What happens when we start moving in this other direction? What if this goes to infinity? We lose a sense of boundary between ourselves and the rest of the world. And Dogen puts it here. He says, to study the self is to forget the self, right? So we're noticing what it feels like to have an experiential self. And as we notice what that feels like, how painful it might be compared to this, we start to forget the self because our brains are not wired to do more of this. Oh, this is painful. So we naturally start opening. Oh, wow. And we can even inject things like curiosity, this attitudinal quality that Pascal talked about this morning, right? It's the, what is it, something, the task and the attitude. The view. The view, the task, and the attitude, right? So that attitude, oh, as compared to, oh, because this is, there's, there's something in it for me, like, oh, I need to get somewhere, or I can't believe this is happening to me, as compared to, Oh, right? So to study the self is to forget the self. As we start to practice this self-forgetting, it's a process. It's a constant process. And then he says, to forget the self is to become intimate with all things. Right? So as we do walking meditation, and there's, there's this seeing of the oak tree outside, and it just draws the senses in, we, lo- we can even have a moment where we lose our sense of self. It's not me seeing the tree, it's just, I can't even describe it, right? There's the experience of the tree being seen, right? And there's this intimacy. There's this intimacy that comes as we expand that, you know, that contraction out to infinity. So to study Buddhism is to study the self. That's what we're studying. Oh, what are the conditions that support contraction? What are the conditions that support awakening, right? To study the self is to forget the self. This is a natural unfolding process that's constantly happening, and we can dial into that. Oh, in this moment, is it contracting? In this moment, is it expanding? We can calibrate this system so that we can dial into that and be curious about that, right? I've talked with... Um, so we can, we can explore that. And to forget the self is to become intimate with all things. So as in those moments of awakening, where are we? Where are we? So let's keep going with that thread. I'll bring the microphone back over. Um, anything you want to add at this point, Pascal? Um, yeah, so, so what comes to mind when I'm hearing this is, um, so, so what makes us go from the red to the blue? And I like the, actually the color of the makes me think of a somatic experience and I think they talk a lot in terms of like what's uh, resourcing, what's blue, what's calming the mind, what's uh, helpful and so I'm just, what comes spontaneously is so this morning for me when I s- I'm saying, I'm offering this uh, question, can this be okay, can this be known you know, so I go from I don't want this to be happening in my life, I don't want this, oh, there's this happening can that be okay, that there's we talk about this in small groups, like that there's lack of control, that there's the uncertainty, I don't know what's coming. You know, I might be saying like, oh my God, I have to plan this because I don't know how this person is going to s- react, and you know, and I can be all tight and red, you know. And then to notice like, wow, this contraction, can that be okay? Can that be okay that I don't know what's coming? Can that be okay? And to me what I hear is like this intimacy suddenly, Instead of like being reactive and uh, identified with something, suddenly there's the, oh, can that be okay? So it's not just in, um, in something that is beautiful, but also something that is actually difficult. And so the blue for me is the compassion also. It's like, wow, Pascal, you didn't get what you wanted. You wanted to, <coughs> you wanted something and the person didn't say it or you do it or something, you know. Wow, separated from what I want. Wow. And so for me, the blue also is the moving from the personal to the universal. You know, thinking of the words of the Buddha saying, 
human beings, they're often separated from what they want. They want to be calm, they're agitated, they want the other to stay, they go, they want the other to go, they stay. <laughs> you know? So when I move from the contracted self, like, oh, this, you know, whatever, this thing, you know, or I'm not being seen as I want to be seen, so, wow, human beings, often they're not seen as they want to be seen. Wow, universal experience. To me, I would imagine, I don't know, that I would fall in the blue, you know? Wow, didn't get what I wanted. Can that be okay? So I'm inviting, you know, compassion, acceptance, these qualities that are blue qualities, like in the sense of uh, appeasing, they appease. uh, And so I'm seeing the Brahma Viharas that I talked about uh, last night uh, as qualities that are bringing us from the red to the blue. So kind, kindness, uh, and equanimity, this capacity to be, can that be okay? To me, that's an expression of an invitation for equanimity. Can that be okay that it's uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable, it shouldn't be uncomfortable, I want to find comfort. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Can that be okay? Can that be known? You know, and suddenly, wow, it's amazing. It's the same situation, but the mind opens, or the heart opens. And suddenly, it's like, oh, okay. I didn't do this well. Oh my God, I didn't do this well. I didn't do this well. Can it be okay that this was not done well? Oh, okay. So anyway, in these little sentences or questions for me, it's the move from the personal to the universal, the move from the, from the being attached, clinging, to uh, <coughs> acceptance, releasing, along the other qualities that we're, we've been... Um, promoting, like, uh, interest, curiosity. What is this? Instead of, like, I don't want, I want, oh, what is this thing I call pain? Is it throbbing? Is it pulsating? Is it piercing? You know, and suddenly, instead of, ah, there's a a turning towards. And um, I'll say one more thing is, uh, what is difficult emotionally or physically, often it will be emotionally, uh, one thing that that could be of help is um, so let's say there's an emotion that is uh, vortexy like you know like uh, worry, obsession, anxiety. You know, it kind of draws the attention because of its strength. And so, what I've learned to do with my teachers uh, is to uh, actually recognize. So there's this. We've been attending to it for some time now. What else is happening? What else is happening? There's this particular light at this time of day. Or this particular coolness. And so uh, it's the relationship with the object, but it's also the choice of the object of meditation. What am I attending to? I don't know what's going to happen with, okay, so there's this problem at home or at work. It's true. It's totally there. What else is happening? Oh, there are toes tingling. To me, that's uh, it's n- not easy to do all the time because sometimes we're in the middle of the wave. Of the, but there's a point where it's possible where I can invite myself. What else is happening, Pascal? Yeah, there's a big story inside the heart. And, but what <coughs> else is happening? And I'll notice something. It's a sound. I would try to find something blue, you know, something that is, uh, so for me, for example, the freshness of the air, something. And because we tend to be, um, get caught easily in what's intense, of course it makes sense, it's only natural, but one of the ways of practice is to recognize this is there, it is really intense, I'm not denying it, but I'm also attending to something else, like in that story of the person who's, uh, hanging on on the branch in a, a cliff, you know, and, and there's a mice, a mouse that is eating at the branch, you know, and the, it's a bottomless uh, thing, you know, so, and they're hanging like, oh my God, oh my God, the mice is, and, and suddenly in the story, I can't remember the whole story, but the image stayed with me from many years ago, and suddenly they see a strawberry. <laughs> And they actually, it might be extremely skillful. (laughs) 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 And this too, there is strawberry here. You know? 
I don't know how you relate to that story, but <laughs> to me it does something to my mind. It's like, wow, there's different ways to live, you know, the different views that we can have. And, uh, yeah, I like this, this image of uh, the image, that a softer image maybe will be, uh, I imagine in the classroom there's a, in a kindergarten or something like this, one of the kids having a tantrum. And so you attend as a teacher, I would, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not the teacher in the kindergarten, although. <laughs> I would attend to this uh, young being, and, and if I am allowed to, maybe I would have my hand on their back and say, I'm here, I'm here. And at some point, I would look around in the room and say, oh, so beautiful, your drawing. Yes, she, she will help you put it on the, on the window there. It's really beautiful. Because <laughs> this is important too. There's, you know that ne- there's this big emotion there, but there's other things also happening, and and so the part of the art of meditation is to say, okay, I've been with this grief, I've been attending to it. What else could be recognized in experience that is a little bit more neutral or have a, has a different tone to it? And then I would imagine that would help uh, going from the red to a little bit of the blue. And in this, I could gain a little confidence. Oh, I feel a little refreshed, maybe a little bit more balanced. I can actually attend to the ache or the hollowness or the tearing apart, you know, or the brokenness. I can attend to it a little bit more because I know that I can go and refresh the mind uh, in hearing and seeing beauty, trees, or something, you know. So, just an idea. Just the way you describe this, it's like we're calibrating our ducometer, right? <laughs> our ducometer. Oh. And all is good. It's not that the calibration of the meter is what's most important, right? And that's what awareness does. Yeah. And so dukkha meaning, for those of you who are not aware of this, this is a Pali word and it means uh, suffering, difficulties in the... Uh, in the text from the Buddha, Dukkha always referred to insatisfaction, stress, being separated from what we want, uh, being stuck with what we don't want. So, so. We're looking at the time, and I'm guessing, I can't read your mind, but I'm wondering whether we want to just sit <coughs> with this or have time for one or two questions. Mm. Yeah. Maybe start by just letting all of this settle in. Just uh, experimenting with that uh, red blue <laughs> <laughs> device of ours. And seeing if there's a there's a question that arises how do I say Um, seeing if there's a I need to know the answer or ah this this would this would be helpful in in my practice I'm just seeing if Seeing what arises as, as a question, if any questions arise from this, maybe we can take one or two. Mm-hmm. If any arise, In, in the presentation of the studies, it it seemed that achieving more blue was a goal, and yet I hear a balance with what Pascal is saying about 
you know, being with both things. It would you say that? Um, well, could you speak more about that? Like, yeah. It, the, the studies that I showed were mainly to calibrate our instrument to see if it was if the brain activity was lining up with the subjective experience and what type of subjective experience actually lined up with the brain activity. So I didn't... There's another study that we did where we took all of their subjective reports and lined them up in a, in a manner, in a blinded manner, so it wasn't, we weren't biased to see what exactly the experience was. And what that, the conclusion that, that was drawn from that was that the red is correlated with this contraction and blue is correlated with expansion, to put them, um, to put it simply. And so none of the studies were about getting too blue. They were, so the examples from the novices, for example, they were just noticing, oh, when I was more relaxed, mm-hmm. I was able to concentrate more, for example, and it was blue. So they weren't trying, we were just telling them to pay attention to their breath, and we were recording and having them report on their subjective experience. So it can, it's interesting because I think it can be easy to draw a conclusion, oh, blue is better. Mm-hmm. But these studies, in fact, were not, we, they were not neurofeedback studies at all. They were just correlation studies to line it up. Yet it was really interesting how their brains were naturally kicking in and learning from the process. That wasn't even part of the instruction. And so we're running a study now with novice meditators as they're learning, going through an MBSR program, to give them feedback and explicitly um, pointing out that this is just a way to calibrate so you can learn from the red, so you can learn from the blue. Both, um, both support knowing our experience more fully. Does that get it? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe I'll, I'll say a few words on this also. Is So it's true that we want liberation, you know? So there is, we want the blue. But at the moment of practice, if we want the blue, we're going to get the red, you know? <laughs> because I'm like, okay, am I getting the blue? So at the moment of practice, and that's, the, the, that's this awareness that mindfulness is a very particular thing. It's not acquiring. It really isn't. It's interested in reality. So if reality is being caught... Then, so at the moment of practice, we let go of wanting freedom. We are interested in reality. And so that's the practice. So, oh, what is that? So the mind is caught. Oh, caught. That is the passage to the blue. It's a byproduct, is the, is the, you see? So it's like you have a goal, but you let go of the goal at the moment of practice. You actually discover life as it's showing. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do. And that's where that taps back into this reward-based learning process. If we know how our minds work the, uh, and look at the results of our behaviors and our mental, mental, physical, whatever, our brains are inclined toward awakening. They're not inclined the other way, right? Otherwise, we'd be teaching dukkha retreats, right? Okay, let's get more, right? Because that's where we would be naturally moving toward. So the mind naturally inclines itself. So we don't have to worry about doing anything except paying attention and letting the system calibrate its... Once we've calibrated the system, let the system take care of itself. That's where the sensitivity that Pascal keeps bringing up comes in. When we become sensitive, we can see clearly, much more clearly, oh, this is causing suffering. Oh, this is leading away from suffering, right? And we might never actually have these words because it's going to be felt. When we have a felt experience of benevolence, it's uh, it's uh, it's um, it, uh, it's convincing. We don't have to think, oh, this is wholesome. I should practice more mindfulness, <laughs> you know, more metta, more benevolence. When we have a real experience of uh, benevolence that comes from somebody else. Or for myself, but we the device is sensitive. We're impacted. We're like, oh my god, this person just held the door for me, <laughs> you know. And we feel, you know, the benevolence in the same way. When we're self-loathing, we might think, uh, be mistaken, and think that's helpful. Come on, you, move on, you know, talking to yourself, like this is an, a good way to work. 
And the more we become sensitive, at some point, that's an insight that people get. It's like, oh, I heard the tone. This is so violent. There's no need for words. It's it echoes. There's vibration. We're we're um, we're sensitive, so it's uh, it's resonating. The heart is really resonating. So if there's something that is unskillful, a pattern that is unskillful, it's going to reverberate. We're going to be shaken. That's words that are used in the text. You know, we're shaken. We're touched by oh, and so we might never think I should not do this. We don't have to think this. We're just like really deeply touched by the abuse of the mind to itself. <coughs> And that starts to dry. The, the mind recoils from that, if that's a word. So let's... Yeah, my question was... It actually, it, it sort of binds into what you were saying. But the thing is, when you have a moment of awareness and you, you're meditating, and then you go, oh yeah, that's it, I got it, that's what I usually do, then you go into the red because you're thinking. You're, mm-hmm. And if you want to... Yeah, build it into your memory, then you have to use words and images, and then you get out of meditation. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Let me ask you you're, this. You're, you're caught in thinking, or is it just mm-hmm. felt, but then you have no words for it? So let me ask you, you this question. You don't make sense of it? Yeah. When you know something to be true, okay. when you feel it in your bones, yeah. is that something you remember? Does it need words? And let me ask this one as a follow-up. Which one sticks around longer? The ones that we try to, you know, bring into our heads and like remember this or remember this versus, oh, when I yell at whoever, it feels like this. Oh, right. Which one sticks around longer? Yeah. So that's. Like what you're saying, it's it's felt. The like the body remembers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we we call that uh, sometimes inner ethics, mm-hmm. inner in- integrity. Mm-hmm. Like it's felt. Like oh, you know, we might come here. Like I have to make a decision about something, and I have to think about it. And and we say like, let's just be here and sit with the wind, with the not much happening. Walk, and at some point this. An integrity that can come, it can be felt like, of course I'm not going to do that, that's not me. Mm-hmm. Of course I'm going to go there. You know, but that little thing is felt. So it's a, it's a resonance rather than a thought process. Okay, thank you. Maybe I'm seeing the time. Uh, I'd like to take just the two minutes to talk about something. It might be useful, I'm not sure, but it might be useful how to practice thinking about stuff heading towards the blue. That I'll put it like this. So, you know, I can think about stuff compulsively, obsessively, you know, I can think, oh. and so one way to do it, to bring mindfulness, uh, would be to actually say, okay, I'm going to reflect on this, I have this decision to make, or I have to review what happened this morning with this person, whatever. Uh, think about this aspect of my life that is troubling I'm actually going to invite as much as possible calm I'm not going to go in that neighborhood alone (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go well accompanied it's an image from somebody else and so I'm going to invite calm I'm going to invite the body to be there I'm going to do this reflection knowing that I'm here now I'm in this room here now I'm not going to forget this I'm here I mean, a body, a body that is breathing, that is feeling. And now I'm going to think about this. So what happened this morning? What happened? And so thoughts and associations of mind, memory will be welcome. But also uh, great care. And at any time, for me, that's a symptom of being caught or not, red or blue, is can I actually stop my reflection just here to breathe a few times? No, 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 because we have to find... Oh, uh, let's breathe a few times here. And to me, this would allow uh, not only to fall a little bit more in the blue, oh, fear, fear arises, oh, shame, shame arises. Oh, there's confusion. Confusion is there. Can that be okay? Can that be okay? I don't know what's the answer. I don't understand what happened. Can that be okay? You know? And in that, 
what I see happen for me is that my values come to the foreground, my wisdom, even the shaky wisdom, the new wisdom, the latest Facebook quote, quote <laughs> my puppet, my head. You know, there's something that creative thinking is possible. You know, I can say, that, oh, oh, it's true, I care about this person. I'd forgotten that. You know. Like, I actually care, but I wonder what, how they felt. What was their experience? Suddenly I can think more deeply, widely. There's more breath to my thinking. And it's embodied. And then at some point I might say, okay, let's put it down now. What else is happening? Birds are singing. This too. Yes, there's this troubling thing that happened yesterday or that happened tonight. But there's this too. And then I learn, I coach myself, I help myself into considering this with care. And so in the break time, now we're going to have meal, and maybe you'll want to think about something. See if you can do this with the body being present, with the feeling tone of pleasant. And, oh, it's really unpleasant. It's pushing in the chest when I think about that. Can that be okay? Can that be felt? And my sense is maybe new ideas will come around that. Maybe not. Who knows? So this is the form it took. Can that be okay? <coughs> okay. Bon appétit. <laughs>